0: I guess I have nobody coming up to read the scripture today. I know this much: I do not see David Soxman present anywhere. Thank you, Deb.
1: scripture this week is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and is the wedding at Cana, which you can find on page 6 in your Sunday bulletin. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim he said to them now draw some out and take it to the chief steward so they took it when the steward tasted the wine that had be- the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew the steward called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
0: So today we are starting a new sermon series, and the title of our series is In God's Smile. The intent of this series is hopefully for us to stretch our imaginations when it comes to God. To think that in the beginning God created us, male and female, in God's image, But how often do we now look at God and think of God and conceive of God in our image? When you close your eyes and you try to picture God, what comes to mind for you? What is the image that quickly pops into your head? I would say, unfortunately, the the dominant one in our culture is an image of God that's born out of the concepts of our reading and interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Because we see God often quickly in this image of a patriarchal old man, you know, the long white hair, the flowing white beard, and a long white robe, who has a scowl on his face when he looks at humanity. You know, the angry God kind of image that comes to mind quickly for so many of us, because that's kind of how we've been formed and shaped and trained. What if? What if we somehow had the impression that God was different than that? Would it change our interaction with God? Would it change our response to God? Would it change our image of ourselves if we could conceive of God in a different way? You think about the impressions that we try to make upon one another. Dinner for Eight, I think, is a really good example of how we try to impress one another because you invite people to come over to your home and you have the opportunity to go to their home as well we've been in several rounds of dinner for eight formally and informally we've had the opportunity to come to a number of your homes and here's the thing that i've noticed about coming to your home right you didn't know i was going to be this observant this morning right they're always tidy and clean not a one of you has invited us to the mess that you normally live in, right? You've invited us to a nice, clean home, well-ordered, tidy, well-decorated. It is dressed up to make a good impression for your guest. Now, hopefully our home looks the same when you come into it. you know. And then you think about everybody who has a dog as well. We're trying to figure out how to mind our dogs to make them not jump on our guest and That's the one thing that all of us probably are challenged with the most is our dog leaves the impression, not us. But think about the other ways in which we try to make an impression because no one wants to make a negative impression, right? All of us want to make a positive impression, that first impression that's going to be a lasting impression because we know impressions are what give us the footing into the relationship. And hopefully it's a strong footing, a good footing, Into it, Not a negative impression that leaves us on a less than desirable footing for this relationship. Think about the impression, though, that you're trying to make in the world around you. It goes beyond just dinner for eight and having guests in your home. You think about the people that you're trying to impress. Your friends, co-workers, clients. You think about a love interest that you might be engaged in if you're single and you're trying to impress someone or your community, neighborhood, the church you're involved in, the impression that we are all trying to make, the positive impression that we want to give to someone else in hopes that will it engender a good future relationship. All of us want to make a good impression. We want people to think the best out of us. Do you think God's any different? Desires any less or anything different than that? To For us to have a favorable impression of the one who created us and sustains us. According to the writer of John, there are several instances where Jesus encounters men and women and in their travels together, they see and hear great signs, wonders, things that he does. And in those moments, those events and those words, Jesus leaves a lasting impression upon them. It's an impression that they cannot forget. The first of these is the wedding at Cana of Galilee, according to the Gospel writer of John. At the wedding in in Cana, Jesus leaves a lasting impression in this moment, does he not? He changes a little louder, a little louder, right, water into wine. Jesus makes a lasting impression in that moment. But the impression isn't just that water was changed into wine. The impression was that God's power in Jesus was on display for all to see. This transformative power that God had given Him on display for everyone to see. And you think in that moment, as people grasp that, as they experience it, God smiles. Because a community of people have now experienced something new. I'm always fascinated by this story though. I'm fascinated by the details that are in it and the details that are excluded from the story. I want to know whose wedding was it that Jesus went to. Was it family or was it friends? How many people were at the wedding and how long had they been there dining together? How many guests got invited to it? Did Jesus wear a robe, a tux, or a well-pointed suit? And did he have a tie on or not? And did he bring a gift? I mean, you ask these kinds of questions, but the gospel writer, he doesn't give us that kind of detail. That's not what's important to him in this moment. That's not the impression that he is worried about or trying to convey for the readers and the hearers. Instead, he picks up other details and lists them for us. The host ran out of wine. The people who threw this wedding feast party ran out of wine. You think about what this parents, the parents of these couples would have gone through. They would have scrimped and saved everything that they could to put on the best celebration that they could as custom of Jesus' day. Friends and family, if they experienced anything less than what they would have expected, would have passed harsh judgment upon them. Sheep, calves, all these delicacies of their day would have flowed in endless delight. They would have experienced all of it for the length of the wedding festival. And wine would have been a part of that from the beginning to the very end of it. Now, water was the main staple for hydration in this time and day and age. But water would not have been a suitable substitute in this moment. Only wine would have been served during the wedding feast. And the wedding feast didn't last for a couple of hours after the ceremony. The wedding feast lasted for a few days. So could you imagine trying to figure out how to entertain all of your family and friends For a couple of days. Could you imagine dinner for eight in that form? How many of you would sign up? (laughs) I don't see any hands going up quickly on that, right? Days of festival. The other thing that's interesting, though, is, is there are stone jars that are available. When the wine runs out, there are stone jars that are to the side. Those stone jars held water and it's important that they are stone because in the Jewish ritual of purification, stone was the ideal receptacle for the water to hold it by their law and their understanding. Stone did not have to be purified itself to hold the water. So when they came to bathe at the beginning of the feast, which is what they would do, they would wash their hands and their feet as part of their ritual to come to this festival All six jars, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water got used and the jars stand empty. Jesus tells the servants to fill them up again with fresh water all the way to the brim and then to dip a cup of it out and take it to the chief steward. And in that moment, the chief steward tastes it and it's wine. But it's not just any wine. It is the best. Which was an odd thing. Because at a Jewish wedding, you always served the best wine first. So that as the worst wine comes out, your guest will not notice. Their palates would have already gotten to the point that they wouldn't care what wine they got, right? They would just get wine. Instead, this is the middle of it, and all of a sudden they get the best wine, and something transpires in that moment that is outside of the norm of what they expected. Good wine came in the middle, not at the beginning. Something unique had happened in that moment. Now you might wonder along with me why these kinds of details. One person after the first um, first service said to me that the other detail that I missed in this was Jesus, his mother, his brothers and his disciples went to Capernaum to sleep it off. You might wonder why these details? Why are these the ones that John decided to incorporate into the story? Why are they important to him? It all has to do with the impression that John wants us to have of Jesus in this moment. What he wants the hearer and the reader to come away with. To note that these empty jars signify something. Not that Judaism was a hollow tradition. But rather that in this moment, Jesus was transforming what he was intimately a part of. His own heritage, his own tradition, his own religion, something new was coming out of his expression. Who he was as God's incarnate person among his people, something new was coming out of that. And this miracle signified what was to come. The miracle of the turning of water into wine, the best wine, speaks of God's transformative power in this moment. That God doesn't have something just general in mind for us, but rather the best in our transformation as well. You see, the impression that Jesus wants to leave is this. That the extravagance of God may not be able to be comprehended, measured, or exhausted. And we can't control it, but we can certainly experience the fullness of it. The best that God has in mind for us. And so at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, God smiled. In a moment where God's power was on display in Jesus Christ, transformation took place for people to behold, witness, and experience. God smiled. I'm reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s book called Stride Toward Freedom. Have any of you ever had the opportunity to read it? No? Let me tell you just a bit about it. I would highly recommend it if you are one who likes to read about history and the civil rights movement. It is Martin Luther King Jr.'s personal account of the coming to Montgomery, Alabama as the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and quickly finding himself in the middle of the bus boycott That transpired for a year. All of us know the story of Rosa Parks who sat down on a bus, tired and weary. She was in the wrong section. She was asked to move and she refused, right? That set off the bus boycott that took place for a year in Montgomery, Alabama. King became an integral part of that, even though he was new to the community. He speaks about his own internal struggle to keep himself from retaliating against those who over that period of time would misuse and abuse and threaten him and his family as well as his community. They would call him at all hours of the day and night to spew hate over the phone. He got letter after letter after letter threatening him, his family, his community, spewing words of hate and anger and violence. At one point, they even threw a bomb on his front porch and blew up the front of his house. And luckily, his wife and his child and a friend were in the back part and were uninjured. In the midst of this, King, along with 89 other members of the black community, were eventually arrested and charged for organizing an illegal boycott. King was the first one tried and he was found guilty. This is what he writes as he walks out of the courtroom. He notes and says, Ordinarily, a person leaving a courtroom with a conviction behind him would wear a somber face. I left with a smile. I knew that I was a convicted criminal, but I was proud of my crime. It was a crime of joining my people in a nonviolent protest against injustice. It was the crime of seeking to instill within my people a sense of dignity and self respect. It was the crime of desiring for my people to live in the unalienable, right, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it was above all. The crime of seeking to convince my people that non-cooperation with evil is just as much a moral duty as cooperation with good. You see, King struggled with this, and he writes about it in this memoir. He struggled with being drawn into this world where he would have retaliated with evil against the evil, against the harshness that he experienced with other harshness to actually combat those who were bringing this war to his own home and his friends and community. To seek out how to arm himself and actually retaliate. That was his personal struggle that morphed into this non-cooperation with evil, what he called resistance, this cooperative resistance against. To be able to resist against injustice. In a nonviolent way. I share this with you because so many of us are drawn and struggle with the world around us. And the way that it wants to draw us into its grasp, its snare. And yet God invites us to something different. I believe that God wants to smile at transformation that takes place in our hearts and our lives. That God wants to smile because we participate in the transformation that is taking place in the world around us. It could be that some of us today need to experience God's transformative power just as King was transformed by God's presence and grace. To be impressed upon leaving the world behind that is around us to come and follow Jesus Christ, God's emissary, God's example for us. And in it, to be transformed in our own hearts and lives. To watch God smile over us. Or maybe to go out into the world and participate in what God is doing around us. Someone was once asked, what does it mean for us to experience God's will in our lives? How do I find out what God's will for my life is? And that person said, simply look in the world around you and see where God is making a difference and then go join in. Because that's God's will for us. To see where God is making a difference in the world and for us to join in. That might be a way in which we experience the smile of God upon our lives. Because this is just as much our story. It's not an ancient story of Jesus at a wedding where transformation takes place. It is our story as well. God wants to transform even today our lives, our world through our lives. If we would find ourselves in the constant stream of the abundant and overflowing grace of God... We might experience this transformation. We might see God smile upon our lives. And if we would go and be a part of what God is doing to make a difference in the world around us, we would see that transformation take place. We might see God smile upon the world. So here's your invitation for today. Carefully read the announcements. That's part of your invitation today. Because in those, there is the opportunity for us to join in what God is already doing in our community of faith and through our community of faith to touch and transform the world around us. But there's also opportunities to come and learn and share, to be nurtured in your relationship, to come follow more closely as a disciple so that you might see transformation take place in your heart and in your own life. And ultimately, hopefully, to see God smile upon you and the world. So here's what I hope that you've learned today. Maybe some things that you've heard and can hang on to for conversation this afternoon. To be reminded that first impressions are our lasting impressions. And we often desire, always desire, I would say, that they be a good one. Even though we may not always achieve that. Jesus made a lasting impression. He made a lasting impression at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. It was a moment where God smiled, but He continues to make a lasting impression upon the world. And as God transforms us into the image of Jesus, I hope that in our faith and in our trust, we will see God work in us and through us to imagine God smiling at what is going on Around us. So I hope today that you're going to go away from this moment with maybe a little bit different of a mental image of God. Right? You can cast away the old image, the old impression. Take with you a glimpse of God who smiles at what is happening in your life and happening in the world that is around us. Would you join me now in a moment of prayer? Creator God, we believe that you smile because you called creation good. And we see your creative energy in the wonderful color schemes around us. Whether bird or butterfly or flower, creature, insect, or in one another. You could not have created sterile images if you were an angry God. But no, we see the beauty that is around us. The creation of one who has gladness at core and smiles at the world. So God, as one who creates in your image, we pray that you will smile down upon us, your creation. May your transforming power and spirit continue to work in our lives and may we respond with faith. And may our lasting impression of you be love, grace, and mercy. Because you continue to call us good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. The one who continues to leave his perfect impression on this world. Amen. I'm going to ask our ushers if they will come at this time for our morning offering. And I'd like to say to each and every one of you, thank you so much for your generous and your loving gifts.